This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm James Briand, a third year Master of Architecture student at Columbia GSAP. I'm speaking today with Anton Garcia Abril and Deborah Mesa of Ensemble Studio in advance of their lecture at the school on September 25th, 2017. Founded in 2000, Ensemble Studio balances education, research, and practice to explore innovative approaches to architectural and urban spaces and the technologies that build them. Anton and Deborah are currently based at MIT where they run Pop Lab, an experimental research initiative that investigates prefabrication building techniques. Their work is deeply invested in understanding both nature and material construction while taking bold risks in service of evoking the sublime. Thank you for speaking with me today and welcome to GSAP. So I wanted to start, could you tell us about your installation at the recently opened Chicago Architectural Biennial, The Vertical City? It's a rerun of an old movie that we've all seen and we, we studied and loved a, a big cultural impact due to the competition of the Chicago Tribune. It was historically one of those moments where architecture and culture coincided in, in in celebrating a typology, you know, the American Tower that has uh, traced most of the, the history of our cities here in America and, and initiated the high rise you know, of, of, the, of the urban. That competition is celebrated again, and Mark and Sharon did challenge us to, to think again about the, the tower to expose that uh, confrontation with 15 different teams that, that did the same exercise in a, I would say, a fake competition. But mm-hmm. I still consider it a competition no? because we were competing for nothing. And uh, this is a, a very, very fair competition when, when different projects are confronted and put together. And I think it was very successful as an event and as a research. I think it gave the opportunity to different teams of architects to pose some questions and uh, make uh, statements about what the future of the typology maybe can be, what it's uh, missing in uh, current expressions and current construction and manifestations. Uh, And we took the chance to present some of the ideas that we have been investigating for some time uh, regarding how to understand such a monumental and, uh, and massive construction as uh, part of, of the city, almost as an extension uh, of it, how to bring uh, more richness in its spaces, more logic in its structures and infrastructures, and more possibilities in, in the life inside uh, the building. So it's not only about the, the facade and the mask, but also how there's the potential interaction between interior and, and exterior. Can you tell us more about your scheme specifically? And do you envision your tower fitting within a city or containing a city? Well, the scheme is based in the very clear principle that all the towers in the contemporary world generally have all its mass structurally concentrated in the center. We call it the core. The architects named this uh, modern tower the core and shell, distinguishing clearly where the masses were concentrated in the core, and therefore all the programmatic services, and the shell as a, as a transparent membrane. After that, different variations of this have occurred, but nobody really challenged the, the existence of that core. What we wanted was to 
defy that gravitatorial center of masses, the core, exploit it, and almost erase it from the tower. Therefore, our perimeter is the result of all these pieces that have exploded from its center, and they surround a space that is not defining the habitable space, it's just creating the boundaries where that uh, space occurs. Among that space, as a structural perimeter, is also permeable, of course, but is where all the different platforms float among that space. Therefore, uh, what Deborah was suggesting, the, the, the extension of the city, the urbanity of this uh, new situation is uh, expressed in a completely unprecedented way. There's a, a vertical permeability, there's an, a spatiality associated to the, to the positions of these uh, horizontal planes, these plateaus among the, among the, the, the equilibrium of these uh, structural parts in the boundary. And that's why we named it the Big Bang Tower. The Big Bang as, as this explosion that broke the center of gravity of the existing core and, uh, and make a different uh, equilibrium based in, in this expansion. And so for us, it's a, so far, it's an idea. It's a, it's a system that can take multiple forms. You know? So the moment that we explode that core, we take it out from the center, those exploded cores can adapt to the urban situations and in a way also expand accessibility into the tower, expand uh, the possibilities of using the different levels in that tower. So it, it doesn't have uh, a specific uh, space until we start thinking it for that we have. We have done case studies for uh, a variety of cities when we start analyzing the, the constraints or the the program, the context, and uh, then it takes a specific form. And also in particular, we were, we were um, rendering an homage to Magnific uh, Adolf Loss column. Uh, our, our Big Bang Tower is a column of columns, and the same wrinkles that created the, the light and the shadow in a classical Doric column or in the Tower of Adolf Loss, those wrinkles occur as interstices of the structures that are creating that, um, that curtain of, uh, of columns that, uh, that is the result of the, the explosion of these centers. No? So this is our contemporary vision of the tower, and we are actually working in some projects to, to build it. And uh, the next layer or the next variable of this contemporary vision of the tower is its prefabricability. Mm-hmm. And this is what we have been exploring um, the last decade, and ultimately in the pop lab at MIT, you know, the capacity of, of, uh, of buildings to be detached from its rooted destiny, its place in its fabrication stages, you know, and how this off-site new condition of architecture is going to affect uh, how, how buildings are conceived and how buildings are manufactured and how ultimately they will be assembled. How is this interest in prefabrication translated to other buildings that are perhaps less in the conceptual realm and actually built? In, in other words, how within your practice, how have industrial or prefabrication logics informed um, your built works? Our vision is that 
a building the way it's built today makes no sense and all the all the industry is is turning into the into the logic of 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 manufacturing a building and and that doesn't mean that uh, uh, prefabrication historically is associated to, of, to, to making panels or facade or, or even prefabricated structures. Mm -hmm. uh, the off-site uh, way of uh, understanding uh, the, the, the construction of a building is holistic. I mean, it's, it's about being able to, in a safe, guaranteed and uh, technically efficient uh, place, be able to, to incorporate all the complexities of a, of a building into pieces and reassemble it on-site. This is not something that could be <clears throat> added after the architect has designed the building. This is something that has to be perfectly embedded into the genetics of, of the design. We, we have arrived to, to prefabrication through practice. So the fact that we are interested and we are seeing the possibilities of uh, prefabrication or uh, techniques in uh, construction is because it has been really practical in some of the works that we've done. And we can say that we've built buildings completely on-site and we have built buildings that combine the off-site and the on-site. And through that experience building, we are trying now to, with the lessons learned, apply all that say, logic and all that practicality and, and all the opportunities that are still to be explored into uh, those other uh, prototypes still to be built that uh, go from the scale of the, of the residential that we have tested and built to uh, larger scale buildings like the uh, high-rise buildings that we were talking about. If prefabrication and uh, sort of by extension industrial production and globalization become a new norm, how do you envision keeping cultural specificity uh, within architecture um, and keeping a sort of local strength to design? Do you think that prefabricating buildings on such a large scale would lead to them looking the same or becoming homogenous? I wouldn't associate industrialization or prefabrication necessarily with a globalization because mm. you can prefabricate a building that is completely specific to a site. It's just the way you design its construction. Its construction no? So what is uh, very interesting for us, it's... Uh, you know, really understanding that when a process is industrialized or it's thought to be industrialized, it means that there's a lot of engineering and thought that is put into it and less of improvisation and less of all of the mistakes that uh, and the, the risks that happen during uh, construction on site, you know, especially in certain uh, areas or geographies, you know? like for example in Boston where we are now, four months a year, it's really impossible to work uh, outside. You know? So it's, uh, it's very inefficient, it's unsafe, and our understanding of uh, prefabrication, it's uh, not probably as uh, it's typically misunderstood. We see other opportunities, and if you see the works that we've done uh, with prefabricated elements, they, they don't look uh, like repetitive buildings, or they don't look like uh, buildings that uh, belong to any place. Or, so although you could associate those concepts, they're not necessarily linked. I want to talk about a maybe flatter and less technological context, but your Tippet Rise Art Center opened a year ago in Montana. 
Can you tell us about how nature has informed the design for you and how you've managed to integrate specifically designed situations into such a natural setting? Imagine arriving to a place without cultural context, without scale, without uh, people. <laughs> and uh, it's really a, a, an unprecedented, a, a very unique, rare and precious natural environment. So how does architecture fit there? Because architecture is a, it's a cultural construct and culture is built chain by chain, you know, almost linking small human actions. You know? So when you depart from zero, uh, we, we found ourselves as, as architects very alone and almost, I would say, nude intellectually. You know? So mm. our departure point was trying hard to start from the beginning. Okay? And starting from the beginning means start without architecture, start without typology, without technique, without even geometries, without technology just with the given. And what was the given? We were given matter, we were given mass, we were given some energies and, and very basic resources. So our, our cultural position was trying to get rid or avoid any previous learned architectonical experiences. In other words, trying to get rid of history, trying, trying to get rid of architecture. And... Uh, this was a total failure, yeah. but <laughs> but we tried hard, and ultimately, architecture came to us, and the very ancestral and almost kind of primitive gestures that we tried to do with mass, no, with rocks, with stones, ultimately became very simple, in a way, expressions of the primary structures, an arch, a dome, a lintel, these kind of special moments of, of equilibrium, no? of, of a relationship with, with, uh, with gravity, with matter, that put together the, the principles of, of architecture. And this was more a discovery than a, a, a search. But it's an ongoing project, so we are, we are happy to continue learning from what nature is telling us to do. No, for us, the arriving to, to Montana, uh, which was the first time we went so far west, it was really like arriving to the moon and having to think of an architecture for that place was kind of a similar exercise. No? Like you wouldn't imagine a conventional building like we see here in New York placed in the moon. No? You almost have to open a new tool, toolbox. Our clients here, Kathy and Peter Halstead, they were our great allies in this adventure because they were challenging us. They knew very well what they didn't want to see. They didn't know exactly what they wanted the art center to be, but they loved the landscape. They wanted the art center to be in complete contact and harmony with the nature there. So it was conversation with them and with the landscape, trying to imagine how could we extract these spaces from the landscape? How could we reinterpret uh, geology? Or how could we build with some of the guidelines that uh, the land that is so powerful there was uh, giving us? No? And trying to listen to, to those uh, voices. 
while building spaces for that could shelter people, that could hold a concert, that wouldn't look like empty buildings, that would coexist with ranching activities and cows and sheep getting close, and that could resist the super hard winters and summers, the snows, the winds. So all of those conditions and a lot of research and a lot of travels to Montana started building all the research and the, the design. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we were lucky to, to build some of the structures that we had designed. How, how do those structures change throughout the course of a day or throughout the course of a year? I imagine that there's a lot of variation based, you mentioned climate, but based on other factors. And has anything surprised you or about how the buildings have started to age or have started to be inhabited? I think they were born old already. I mean, <laughs> because they came from the earth, they were physically and uh, spiritually unearthed and discovered because they were pre-buried in their metamorphic formation of the structure. They were casted against the earth, with the earth, melted and mixed, contaminated by it. So even though it was a site-specific built structure, when we, uh, with different strategies, one was tilted, the other one was uh, pushed against the other one, no? celebrating all these geological uh, collisions that uh, occur in the in the Bertus Mountains or in the San Andres Fayan. So we really thought that these pieces had a strong, uh, almost metaphysical belonging to the place from day one. Eh? That was our desire, but our surprise was that uh, the, the, the people that visit them, the locals, the ranchers, the people from there, immediately had an intimate connection with these uh, mm -hmm. structures. They were associated to them and to the landscape and therefore to the time of that place, that is scalelessness. And uh, I think that the aging started much earlier than we built them. Eh? Mm -hmm. I was there last week and suddenly I arrived in September and it was all white, snowed. And uh, it was really beautiful to, to, to see those, those pieces with a fresh couple of inches of snow and how it was sheltering immediately all the animals. <laughs> so they, they really interact with different phases of, of, of nature, including our human one. We could not anticipate how, but the way they were designed and, and built allows for nature to take over. The strong winds blow the seeds that get encrusted in the rough surfaces and the plants grow and then the wind blows them away and then the sky reflects the colors and then they get covered with snow and they almost disappear except for the shades that or the, the black dots that their spaces, interior spaces take in the landscape. So they are constantly changing because it's a very dramatic uh, landscape that changes uh, every day. So between reinventing a skyscraper typology and the geological formations of Montana, what's the thread between these two things in your work and how do you connect these two disparate scales and realities uh, on, a, on a daily basis? That's, that's what we ask every morning when we <laughs> get to work. And I think it's a very, there's a very strong connection because 
it seems that we work in the in both sides of the moon, no? uh, in the raw materiality of an of the earth, and how to very transform it just to make a non-programmated building uh, rather than a, a very say raw structure that still has all the properties of architecture to a fully mechanically industrialized system that would allow a total configurability and versatility of a high race. Okay? Those mm -hmm. two objectives seem to be distant and they are but architecture is about that. I mean the mystery of architecture is that by building we have to deal with all these different scenarios and uh, and we've had the chance to be operating in both uh, simultaneously but with the perspective that they are let's say different scenarios of the same universe no and by the way our world is based in the combinations and all the variations of these two situations we we've we've always called it the urban and the landscape no i think we push it a little bit further no the landscape we try to go earlier than the landscape appeared as a concept okay the landscape is still an, an aesthetic revised version of something eh? we, we we try to go pre landscape eh? and when we talk about the urban we try to go a little bit further either okay the systemic urbanity that we understand it has has to take profit of all the technological advances that we do have now and that includes automation that includes robotics that includes artificial intelligence and that includes everything that we can technologically use to profit of the construction of a fantastic building that serves spiritually to us no? mm. And uh, I think there's a connection between these two extremes that you very well uh, <laughs> situated. We've been working since day one, yeah, when we, we were building the truffle and the Meroscopion house, that were the two prototypical, let's say, first breaths of, of, of this uh, research that now is following on mm. in, 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 in greater scales. But, this, this happened 15 years ago. Eh? We did this question to each other. No, where are we? No? Why are we doing the travel and the Merskopian house, a pre-casted house, fully automated with cranes? And in the same side, we were pouring concrete against a hay bale and, and removing um, soils. No? Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, it's the same. <laughs> they are answers to very different questions. We are looking at uh, completely different animals, or although they are like the different sides of the same coin, as Anton was saying, but really working in a completely wild landscape with no presence of architecture is dramatically different to trying to figure out how to contribute to the density and the life in the city with all its uh, other complexities and, and layers. And we are not uh, probably married to any technology or any material or any program. We like the complexity and the diversity of, uh, of trying to research in these very different fields. Because, you know, essentially, 
they end up in reaching each other. So now sometimes we are working in cities and we are thinking, you know, how could we bring you know, some of the magic, some of the power of, of those landscapes that we have seen and, and built, you know? So they're not completely separate worlds. And, uh, and now that we have been working in both, we are kind of asking the question, you know, how can we bring them together and where? And how can we enrich one research from the other, but we cannot answer this question. We cannot answer those, <laughs> but th this is actually intriguing us very much. We are trying to bring all the all the all the mysteries, the masses, and the aromas of the landscape to the big city, and we are also trying to apply uh, contemporary fabrication techniques and uh, logistics to the next wave of projects that we're going to do in, in Tipitras, trying to 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 respond to questions that are still unanswered, like how did the stones from Stonehenge arrived to that place. Those were transported, were unearthed somewhere and logistically carried out, lifted, we don't know how because they didn't have the cranes that we do have today. Mm -hmm. So was that landscape intervention or was a prefabrication <laughs> technique that these guys put together? This is a question that we want to, or, or the pyramids, all that granite came from another quarry far away also. Anyway, history has taught us that those terrains are slippery and you could, by starting here, slip away from it and arrive to the other, no? Mm -hmm. Our culture today has created a categoric distinction and people live in the cities and on the weekend they escape into the Hudson River <laughs> eh? and they, they enter the landscape. And architecturally, we have different expressions to this. Here we have steel and glass, and when you enter the gas landscape, you have a, a beautiful cottages of, of, uh, of wood and, mm -hmm. and, and stone. Well, this is, a, I would say, a, a branded category. I think that the hybrids will soon uh, define certain differentiation of, of, uh, of the context, but ultimately, uh, there's a human need of belonging to these two. And all the sociological trauma is that people love to be in community in cities of 20 million people that, but Friday afternoon, they need to escape, they need to breathe, they, mm -hmm. they need an horizon, they need to look far away. So our question was, could architecture serve these two spiritual needs? Mm -hmm. Or we have to suffer enclosure and insulation Monday to Friday to give us the opportunity to, to breathe oxygen and, and, and see a sunset on the weekends. I think architecture and the cities could uh, work to giving us uh, the full menu, the full experience, the full beauty of, of both worlds. Well, thanks so much for those insights. It's really fascinating to see how you try to blur those lines and be on both sides of the same coin simultaneously. Um, thanks again for speaking with me, and we really look forward to your lecture later on this evening. Our Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with ARC Daily. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.